Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 29, I Demand to Speak with Your Manager, where we will be looking at chapter 61 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of escalation. As chosen by our Twitter followers. Thanks, guys and gals and non-binary pals. Let's be real here. It's episode 29. You probably know the drill by now, but I'm going to do it anyway. As a way of explanation for the podcast, each week we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply it to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. And finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Now, before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. You're probably all familiar with these. Again, episode 29 and all that. But, first of all, as always, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Though, should such an arrangement become an option, we wouldn't be opposed. Second, our discussions are naturally going to assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other material in the continuity, or B, you're a weirdo who comes from an alternate dimension and perceives time in an atemporal fashion, and so there are no such thing as spoilers because you've read both the beginning, the middle, and the end at the same time, like you've eaten the weed of time from Norman Spinrad. Or you live in the world of Arrival. Yeah, that could be too. But hey, we're open to atemporal guests who have already heard our final episode as well, so... <laughs> could you tell us what happens at the end of the book series? They already have. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> and finally, and perhaps most importantly, as a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text and writings of the author, we're not going to stand by for any abuse of anybody. And with that, now it's time for a 45-second recap. This time it's Phoenix's turn, so no more rhyming couplets for a while, everybody. For a week? It's just a week. Anyway, we don't actually know if anyone likes them. No one's told us. Hint, 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 listeners. If you like Will's rhyming couplets, or if you think that the forced rhyme of instrument is forced, let us know. We would love to hear from you. Go ahead and hit us up on Twitter at WaystonePod. Message us on Instagram at WaystonePod. We have a Facebook page at Tales from the Waystone, and we also would love more subscribers on our YouTube channel. Also look up Tales from the Waystone. And no, I am not stalling. I will eventually get to my 45 second recap of this section, I swear. I promise. I really will. I believe you. Do you? Does it matter? Not really, because it will actually happen, I promise. Sure. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, let me know when you're ready. I'm ready. All right. In three, two, one, go. 
Quoth writes a song disparaging Ambrose, who then brings charges against Quoth for conduct unbecoming. Quoth buys his book back from Lauren and practically begs to be let back into the archives, saying he'll do anything for Lauren. Lauren tells him to demonstrate patience. After the masters are dismissive towards Ambrose's grievances, requiring only a letter of apology from Quoth, Ambrose effectively blacklists Quoth. The only inn that will hire Quoth now is Anchors, where he writes his apology letter in excruciating detail, and we learn that Ambrose will eventually try to kill him. 35.17 seconds. Made it. It was a near thing. It was not. I was 10 seconds under. <laughs> All right. Let's get into it. All right. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. It's a pretty dense chapter, much like last week. Yeah. So even though the chapter primarily concerns the ongoing escalating feud between Quoth and Ambrose, this is also where we start to see the torch that Quoth is carrying for Denna, who has disappeared. Again. Although, really, I don't know that she's so much as disappeared as she's just gone somewhere else. Without telling Quoth. How dare she? I mean, it's not like she owes him an explanation. It's not like she owes anyone an explanation. But... Exactly. She's just moved on. That's just life. I think that the audience gets how we feel towards this relationship. I don't know that we have to hammer it in. So, moving on then, we get some more fun with our pal Threp. I enjoy the way he is. I see him sort of as a cross between Weird Al and maybe Tom Lair. He is known mostly for having a clever wit, and he likes to sing songs about people that disparage them sometimes. And he's generally a man about town. Always good for a story and a laugh. He's pretty jovial. And this is also the birth of perhaps Quoth's best little jibing ditty, Jackus Jackus. Which, I mean, to be fair, only works because this is the first time we've actually learned Ambrose's last name. No, I think that we've learned it before. I did a search. We do not. This is the first time it's mentioned. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time Ambrose is given a last name. And Jackass is not a swear. It's a donkey. So that is why I am not replacing every instance of... Ash. With Ash. <laughs> <laughs> And it's also a little bit where we find out the value of just a few simple power chords and something that people can hum. I like the description of if you had one ear and a bucket, you could carry the tune. Yeah, you think of some of the most enduring songs out there, and they're simple. They're catchy, and... Most of them can be played with the same four chords. Yeah, sometimes even three. It doesn't make them bad. It just means they're simple and they work. Not bad, just simple. <laughs> and there's something to be said for something simple executed well. So the other thing to know about Jackass Jackass, it was catchy and vulgar 
and mean-spirited. Yeah, and all of this because, unsurprisingly, Quoth has been nursing this grudge with Ambrose, and of course Ambrose has returned the favor. Yeah. Quoth keeps hoping that Ambrose will do the thing that he himself can't do, which is to say, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. That's enough. I mean, frankly, just hearing that, I would not blame anyone who decided to completely unsubscribe from the podcast forever. Or just turn off this episode. But then you wouldn't get the rest of it. And we'd be sad. We would be sad, but we wouldn't blame you because we did such grievous crime against your ears. And by we, I mean me. Eh. Let's go on. Moving on. (laughs) (laughs) And here we find out that I did my recap slightly backwards, but I don't care. Both sets foot in the archives, and we get the painstakingly detailed reminder that the archives is lit with sympathy lamps. Yep. How else are they supposed to get around? Not with a candle. Yeah, you don't want to have a Library of Alexandria situation. Quoth's an idiot. Anyway. So something that really interested me about this scene was the exchange with Viari, who is Lawrence Giller. So he's a full-fledged arcanist who's got his own gilder and everything, who works as an acquisition specialist. So there were a couple of things that really set him apart from other characters that we've met so far. So first of all, even though he's shaldish like Will and Kilvin and a few other folks that we meet along the way, he's clean-shaven and he wears his hair long. So he already doesn't necessarily conform to the social expectations of his people. And he also has a real ear for languages because he has the ability to speak perfect Siaru with Will. And then he transitions into Yilish when he mistakenly identifies Quoth as being from Il. And then he corrects himself and recognizes Quoth as one of the Edimaru and then introduces himself with perfect Aturin and also a greeting that is more how the Ru would talk among themselves. So he kind of switches his manner of speaking to match his audience in a really fascinating way. There's a little bit of code switching there. And part of me wonders if he actually has a bit of Rue background himself. Because the Edema Rue aren't strictly a single ethnicity. They take people from all over. They're a culture as opposed to an actual genetic line. I thought that was really fascinating, and it sounds like he's someone who's had his own share of adventures. I mean, he's walking around fully armed in the library and the university, which is pretty much unheard of. So he's clearly had his share of action, and I would love to see a thing about his adventures. I think that that would be really fascinating. I think picking up on that, it's an interesting theory, and I think it's sad that it doesn't seem to have been picked back up any time in the next book and a half. The books are so, so, so chock full of so many things that I doubt all the loose threads and all the interesting things will be picked back up. But I know I, for one, find this much more fascinating than Quoth's continuing relationship with Dena. Same. (laughs) Certainly a lot less cringy. Yeah. Speaking of cringe, we then get the exchange with Lauren. Will sends Quoth back to Lauren's office and says it's down at the end of the hall. There's a brass plate on his door. 
four-plate door, one-plate door. Maybe it means something. Here we get one of the instances in this chapter of somebody, in this case Will, softly humming the melody from Jackass Jackass. As I say, it's catchy. So when Quoth gets into Lauren's office, we get this little exchange where it's very to the point, which is Lauren's style. We also, though, get another reminder of Lauren being like a greystone. His voice was like a sheet of smooth gray slate. Also, I always take his good morning to be both a greeting and a goodbye. <laughs> In a lot of the cases here, it is just goodbye. Yes. <laughs> it's a very British thing, I think. Good morning. Go away. <laughs> exactly. So first, they have a little exchange where Lauren, not unkindly, returns the book, Rhetoric and Logic, which has been sort of a touchstone for Quoth, reminding him of his family, and particularly Ben, which that's pretty important right there. And I love how Lauren is like, the care for another book is no extra obligation for me. He treats it very thoughtfully. And I mean, the description of Lauren's office immediately says that this would be the type of place I'd like hanging out with not a single bare wall, everything just covered with books. Yeah, I have been thinking about this a lot. And I think that wherever we wind up, we need to make a place that has at least one wall with just a huge built-in bookcase and have an entire wall of books. A book nook. A book nook, yes. <laughs> I agree. I have no objections whatsoever to this plan for our future home. But yeah, it's a place that seems pretty inviting to me. And I think this kind of speaks to how Lauren likes to live his life too. I can respect it. After Quoth gets rhetoric and logic back, he does the thing, of course, that he can't stop himself from doing, and that's asking to be reinstated. Allowed back into the archives. Yeah, I don't see that happening. And this also kind of speaks to how not to apologize. I think he started off okay. I think he just said... I want to apologize and say I'm sorry for the thing I did. And that's where it falls apart and it continues to fall apart? Yeah, it's all downhill from there. He says, I want to say I'm sorry, but he doesn't actually say he's sorry. He then tries to justify and excuse. I had just been whipped. I was high on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Ambrose is a forking liar. Yeah. It ends up being kind of smarmy at that point. It's defensive. Let's not say smarmy. Smarmy, I think, is more intentional. I think that Kvothe is 15 years old, and I think that no one has addressed how to apologize like an adult. Well, Lauren is doing that for him right now. I do love that... While Quoth is like, I will do anything for you. Anything you ask. Anything. And then Lauren asks for the one thing that Quoth is incapable of doing. Being patient. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like when I was a kid, oftentimes my dad would use the lure of, hey, after we're done with these errands, maybe we'll go get ice cream, if you're patient. <laughs> and every time it's like, oh, hey, can we go get ice cream now? Can we go get ice cream now? How about now? I've been patient. <laughs> I waited. See, can we get ice cream? <laughs> and every time it just dragged it out longer and longer. And oftentimes there would be no ice cream at the end of that because you asked too much about it. And you weren't patient. Exactly. And that's kind of, I think, how Lauren is about this. It's really awesome that your dad actually fulfilled that, though. He actually didn't take you for ice cream if you weren't patient, which is not something that normally happens. Normally, the kid wins. My dad isn't most people. I love him. And, he, and you know, he always said, we might. He never said we would. I admire his resolve. <laughs> but it was just sort of how every time you would ask about it, it just reset the clock. Which is actually my theory about how long it's taking to get Doors of Stone. Every time one of us asks, when will it be ready? It just extends it by a day. Just resets the clock. It's probably been ready for a long time. I'm going to guess six years. And every day it's just been pushed out one more day as some jerk says, when will we have Doors of Stone? <laughs> and then next thing you know, we're where we are now. All our fault. Moving on. <laughs> I think Lauren's little admonition here is as much to us as readers as it is to Kvothe as a character. I do want to point out, though, Lauren is not an emotionless monolith. His voice gets tinged with a little bit of emotion over the thought of his books burning. Again, with the wonderfully poetic language, you were caught with live fire among my books. He said, emotion touching the edges of his voice, like a hint of red sunset against the slate gray clouds. Yeah, it's got a little bit of a synesthetic element to it. I really like that too. It paints a wonderful picture. And so then Quoth finds himself back on the horns, which seems to be a daily process for him. Maybe monthly. At least once a term. It seems like. I don't think the Masters like frequent flyers. I don't know. Arwell and Elodin and Elksadal and Kilvin don't seem to mind him. Although I don't think they like having to be in the position of having to defend him all the time. I mean, I wouldn't. So I work in IT. And you start to notice your frequent flyers. And... You may like them on a personal level, but on a professional level, at a certain point, you're like, can't you just work like the rest of us? I think that they think that their job is to complain to IT. Sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> There's quite a lot of description about Foth's room at the Horse and Four being luxurious, being a vast comfortable bed, being all these things that, honestly, I'm sure that they're not quite like luxury hotel level, but for someone who was sleeping on a roof a year ago. Just having several rooms to yourself 
that are clean and dry and warm, that's not nothing. And it could feel luxurious. I think we have to look at this in levels of degrees. Well, and also, as a student, you could always tell the people whose parents had a good amount of money coming in based on the type of apartment that they had. Because <laughs> I knew people who had really nice apartments, and then I knew people who had apartments like mine. <laughs> yeah, I've heard stories of the apartments you lived in in college. Curse you, merciful Poseidon! Yeah, we had one that had sprung a toilet flood. It was gross. Ew. Yeah. So, here is where Ambrose goes peak, I want to speak with your manager. <laughs> and he brings Quoth up on charges, which really seems like is absolutely ridiculous. So when I worked in a call center, oftentimes you would get customers who would ask to speak to the manager for every little thing, and they felt like they were going to be narking on you a little bit. As though they were going to say, well, this person didn't do the thing that I want you to do, so you're going to do it, and you're going to make them get in trouble. So it was always interesting because my manager was tough as nails and had a reputation for being absolutely fierce. But the thing was, he was absolutely fierce in protection of his people. And so once you were good with him... It was always a question of, who is he going to believe? Is he going to believe his person that he's worked with, who he's trained, who he's guided and nurtured? Or is he going to believe some rando who's yelling on the phone? Interesting parallel between your discussion about you and your manager and Lauren's discussion about him and Rilar Ambrose. There's a little of that. And it was always a really amusing thing where someone would say, I want to speak with your manager. And I would flatly tell them, Frankly, you really don't. I was offering you a credit, which you didn't think was enough, and I'm doing that because I'm rated on customer satisfaction. My manager is not. That is not one of his key performance indicators at all. And he will look at you and say, you turned down a thing that my representative offered you as a courtesy, and then you demanded to speak with me. Now, my representative is supposed to make you feel happy, and he did everything he could for that, and you turned it down and instead spoke to me, so I'm not giving you anything, and in fact, I'm going to invite you to choose another provider. It was quite the sight to behold, and I absolutely loved watching that reversal play out. But the fact is that sometimes it's not worth it to escalate, because once it's been escalated, it's really hard to de-escalate. And it is notable, both of us have worked in call centers, and the term for moving up to a manager, and in my case, I worked for a bank, and we had the normal customer service reps, and then we had other customer service reps that weren't actually managers, but they were referred to anytime that a customer was like, I want to speak to your manager. That department was called escalation. Yep. And it's not because of us in the call center it's because of the jerk customer who wouldn't believe that the person taking care of them was actually taking care of them yep i'd occasionally use the trick of i am the manager because we were given extreme latitude in my department 
We were trusted to be people who would advocate for our customers and do what we thought was appropriate for them. And if we didn't feel it was appropriate, we didn't have to. And if we felt it was appropriate, we could apply whatever credits we needed to. We had a lot of leeway. In fact, there was nothing my manager could do that I couldn't. But at the end of the day, someone saying, I want to speak to your manager didn't really get anyone anything that they couldn't have gotten just by asking nicely. Yeah. I knew someone who, when calling customer service, immediately after hearing the greeting from the customer service rep, would just say, I want to speak to your manager. It didn't matter. He wouldn't let them talk. He wouldn't tell them what the problem was. He just said, you can't do anything for me. Give me your manager. Yeah, I'm guessing this person was one of those people who got terrible customer service everywhere they went. Yes. <laughs> In fact, this is also a person who yelled at a 16-year-old working at Subway because they didn't cut his sandwich bread right. Yeah. In those situations, that's a person where you realize that the common denominator there is them. Yeah. You gotta think about that. If you get terrible customer service everywhere you go, it's you, dude. And I think Ambrose is probably one such person. I'd agree with that. <laughs> I don't think Ambrose has ever gotten good customer service anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said for working those frontline positions. It really teaches you the value of treating people respectfully and decently. What sucks is that that particular person also had worked in customer service. Yeah, some people who work in customer service really stop appreciating what it means. So it's not a sufficient thing, but it is, I think, a necessary thing. Not everyone who goes to school learns the lessons they're supposed to. So, And so, of course, through all of this, you can tell that uh, the chancellor is really annoyed that he has to deal with this. It's like a grade school teacher having to deal with just the dumbest dispute. Rilar Ambrose, make your case. Keep it under a minute. Are you a donkey? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> Are you possessed of a pizzle bound to fizzle? Yes or no? <laughs> no and no. Okay, cool. Case closed. And then Hem does Ambrose no favors, <laughs> requiring that the apology letter be public. You know, here I think Quoth is perhaps a tad uncharitable to Hem, because I don't think Hem likes Ambrose that much either. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Well, he figures it's two birds with one stone. He's probably annoyed at having Ambrose treat him officiously and try and boss him around. And he just doesn't like both. He doesn't have to like either of them. Accurate. And hell, if I were in Hem's position, I really would absolutely hate having to be subservient to Ambrose. I'd also hate to have to be Ambrose's babysitter. Yeah. I mean, this is one where you just want to say, good God, just grow up and fortify. Just deal with it. Did someone make fun of you? Just, ah, grow up, man. You're a grown-ass man. The Chancellor says, Rilar Ambrose, in the future, you will refrain from wasting our time with spurious charges. And before Quoth can feel smug, and you, Alir Quoth, 
will comport yourself with more decorum in the future. Which could have held more weight. Except Elodin was humming Jackass, Jackass. And then breaks out into the full song. He's a well-bred ass. You can see it in his stride. And for a copper penny, he will let you take a ride. It's a donkey, guys. We don't need to replace the word. Get your head out of the gutter. So then Kvothe heads back to the horse and four, which is his big, luxurious suite, which, again, may just be relative, and there's nothing wrong with that, is what I'll also say. And he soon finds out that maybe he's picked a fight he shouldn't have. Because he has two days of relaxation before the owner gets bought out and replaced by someone who pretty unceremoniously throws him out on his behind. And then every single inn on this side of the river says, no, I do not want you playing in my inn, or just ignores him. He finally comes back to Anchor's, his last shot, and Anchor gives him a different bit of treatment here. Anchor's is a much more modest inn compared to everywhere else he's been, and it serves primarily working clientele. These are just regular folk. They don't have much in the way of status or money. But the kitchen's decent, and the hearth's warm, and he's got a spare room. And he also happens to own the place outright. He doesn't have any obligation to listen to Ambrose. Fact is, if someone were to threaten him with no noble clientele, he's like, well, don't threaten me with a good time. (laughs) (laughs) He's a dive bar, not even necessarily a fashionable dive bar. Fair enough. One little thing about that spare room. It was a storage closet. That's what it was. We find that out in the wise man's fear after he comes back from Ventus and asks for his room back. At the same time, though, it had enough room for a small bed and a desk and a chair, which is really what Kvothe needs. Plus, it's private. I mean, I've been plenty happy with small dorm rooms before, so. There's a part here where Kvothe says that Things were put into sharp perspective for him when he realized that Ambrose had to have been the one to purchase the horse and four. Not just to kick the manager out, but outright bought the building and the land and replaced the person running it. And Kvothe, who acknowledges that to him, everyone is rich because he is so destitute. He finally realizes how many orders of magnitude higher Ambrose is than, like, Sim. Or Will, for that matter, who's the child of wealthy merchants. Ambrose's wealth and power is orders of magnitude beyond most people just in town. And he's able to outright, just on a whim drop the kind of money to buy out an entire establishment. That's not walking around money. No. But he's able to do it in just a matter of days. This is where perhaps a wiser hero might say, maybe this is a fight that's not worth picking. But not our quote. (laughs) No. And so, of course, he proceeds to then not only write essentially a backhanded apology but then also proceeds to write down all the lyrics and notation for the song, plus some additional verses, 
and then have them plastered all over town so everyone can see them. And not only plastered all over town, he got Sim to make a alchemical adhesive that dries as hard as steel and would require a hammer and a chisel to take these things off of those surfaces. Which makes me wonder if he put them up on private property at all and if they're stuck with that letter on their building. <sighs> there go the property values. Yeah. You're going to have to just paint over that shirt. And of course, we get the ominous warning that this is probably why Ambrose decided to kill him. Yeah. I think with that, we can move on. I think we're ready for our Fernemos. This week, it's my turn to find our Aristotelian model of practical wisdom. And so here, my choice was Anchor. That seems like the logical choice and would have been mine as well. So one thing I've noticed about the series as a whole is Kvothe is drawn to innkeepers. And I think that between the innkeeper in Tarbian and Anchor, we've seen that this is sort of a fantasy career for him. Sort of in that, I think it'd be cool to own a bookstore kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> These are people who have shown him kindness and people who have shown hospitality and generosity to him when they maybe wouldn't have owed it to him and have done so kindly. And I think that may also play a role in why he chose Innkeeper for his alter ego coat. This is someone who is respectful and kind and courteous and treats people with decency and generosity, I think he could do a lot worse. And Anchor here is also someone who is truly working class. He owns his building outright, but he's not super wealthy. He's clearly putting all of his resources into actually running this in an establishment, and he does so with an eye towards making something that's affordable to people who have to work for a living. He runs an honest establishment, and he also appreciates a good bit of music, and he recognizes the opportunity for a good deal here. He knows Quoth needs something that he has, which is to say, a place to stay and warm food. And he will gladly give those to Quoth in exchange for playing a few nights a week, which is a pretty good deal for Quoth too. He would have wanted to play anyway. If he weren't blacklisted, he could have probably found someplace a little more finely appointed. But the room he has at Anchors is clean, it's dry, and it's safe. And this is someone who doesn't really care much about impressing nobility. He's willing to tweak the nobility, in fact. I think that there's a lot to take from Anchor. He's humble, and he's not going to look too respectfully on someone just by virtue of their title. He looks on people based on how they treat others. And if they're treating others kindly, he's happy to return the favor. So I think that's a pretty good pick. I would agree with you. I think also being sure of yourself and not worried about what others think of you is admirable in the right circumstances. I think what it boils down to is if you're doing what you know is right, you don't need to worry about what other people think of you. I like that. Well, now it is my turn to share an interesting fact. That's right. And if you don't, it'll be raspberries for you. <sighs> better interest me. I better. 
Raspberries are gross. I love them. Well, you can have your own damn raspberries. Nothing's stopping you. Harumph. Harumph. Just don't want them anywhere near me. Foot. Foot. All right. So for interesting facts today, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. So the day that we're recording this is Father's Day. And I lost my dad when I was really young. A few years ago, we saw the movie Inside Out in theaters, you know, when that was a thing. And we saw it on or around Father's Day. And Facebook has reminded me that my reaction to that movie was that I wished that it had come out when I was a kid because I feel like it would have helped me process some of my emotions. For those that don't know, Inside Out is a Pixar movie about 11-year-old's emotions, and it takes place almost entirely in her head. So anyway, today's interesting facts, yes, facts, are about the movie Inside Out. So number one, the appearance of each emotion, joy, sadness, disgust, fear, and anger, is based on a different shape. Joy is a star, sadness is a teardrop, and this one's my favorite, is... Disgust is a broccoli, fear is a raw nerve, and anger is a fire brick. Number two, some of the memory balls in Riley's head contain scenes from other Pixar movies, like Carl and Ellie's wedding from Up. Number three, originally Joy was going to be paired with fear instead of sadness. The movie makers thought it would be a funnier pair, but ultimately came to the realization that sadness would be a more meaningful partner for Joy. Number four, most major studio animated films are localized and Inside Out is no exception. One of the changes made for Japanese audiences is to replace instances of broccoli with instances of green peppers because Japanese kids are more disgusted by the peppers. And five, Inside Out is the first Pixar feature film without an antagonist. Okay, so while that is unorthodox, I do love Inside Out. It's a great film. And so, yeah, I'll give it to you. No raspberries. The little disgust icon in your head can go back to sleep. <laughs> yeah, mine isn't green. It's red and it's shaped like a raspberry. What a beautiful droop. You're adorable. All right. And with that, I believe it is time for us to find our seven words. So I had the books. So my seven words are... From Lauren here. I accept your apology, Kvothe. Good morning. <laughs> oh, I think that that's really good. I love how he's like, apology accepted, go away. I think that you gave that a little too much inflection if you're going to be saying that that was Lauren who said that. I accept your apology, Kvothe. Good morning. I just get the impression that he's just like, good day. I said good day. <laughs> <laughs> I just was tickled by that. So how about you? What are your seven words from life? This week, my seven words from life are enthusiastic readers make a good book great. Mm, where'd you find that one? Just sprang out of my head after hearing you say something very similar. 
don't remember exactly what you said, but I remember reworking it a few times to make sure it was seven words. I'll accept that. Good. You have to. I do. I have no choice. You have no choice. I'm glad you came up with that one. That's a nice one. Thank you. And I hope we're providing that for some people who are reading the book right now. Yeah. The best thing that you could do for us is to share our podcast with your friends, especially if you would recommend the book, because obviously you like it enough to listen to us talk about it. We'd be delighted to be a companion piece for your friends. We hope that we are a good companion piece for you. Absolutely. And with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 62 and 63 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of advances. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where in addition to early access to our podcast, our show notes, custom digital posters, and other exciting items, you can listen to our Solstice Pod, which came out probably at this point about a month ago, though for clarity, when we recorded this, this came out yesterday. <laughs> And our Solstice Pod is about a wonderful book that is not for children, although it is a picture book. And it was written by Patrick Rothfuss and illustrated by Nate Taylor. And it is called The Adventures of the Princess and Mr. Wiffle, The Dark of Deep Below. We would hope that you come along and join our fun little romp through a very twisted and imaginative little picture book. And even if you don't, I'd still highly recommend that you go out and buy that book. And the first book in the series, which is The Adventures of the Princess and Mr. Wiffle, The Thing Beneath the Bed. Which incidentally, we did our first Solstice Pod, which can be found on our Patreon page, on that book. I think if you sign up now, you'll get access to both of those. And with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Thank you very much for pointing that out because that would have been terrible deeply frustrating oh no not just deeply frustrating anger inducing anger inducing yes. ah!